0: If you're wondering what a homily is, it's a short sermon. I hope that's okay with you this morning. When I was in high school, Mario Lemieux, in my opinion, perhaps the greatest hockey player to ever play the game, hosted a celebrity golf invitational in Pittsburgh, where I lived, and he invited local students uh, to come and volunteer different roles throughout the whole course. You could be a scorekeeper, you could be a quiet sign holder guy, um, all sorts of different things. And for an autograph-hungry young boy such as myself, this was an opportunity of a lifetime. I was getting whiplash from all of the celebrities and athletes that I was seeing. Names like Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, Wayne Gretzky, Dan Marino, John Elway, Emmett Smith, they were all there. My jaw was dropped. And after your volunteer shift, you could wander the grounds to your heart's content, watch the golf, mingle with the other participants. And I don't know where this boldness came from, but I thought it might be a good idea to try to sneak into the clubhouse (laughs) to go find my heroes. (laughs) I'm not sure what I was thinking, and in retrospect, I'm fairly sure that I wasn't thinking. Um, But I think I thought... I'm just a kid. What can they do to me? Um, It's easier to ask for forgiveness, right? So I snuck in. And for some reason, uh, though I was absolutely terrified that I was going to be found out, I see Mario Lemieux and I make a beeline for him. And I stuck my hand out and I shake his hand and I say perhaps the most awkward thing I could have said, like, great tournament you've put on here or some. (laughs) Some silly phrase. It was all I could do not to run out of there, half in embarrassment and half amazed that I had just pulled this off. I practically worshipped the ice that he skated on, and somehow I had snuck into a place that I very much did not belong, and I got a chance to shake the hand and have a few words with my hockey idol. And I wonder if that's not a bit like each of us today acutely aware of our deficiencies and shortcomings and just ordinariness, and yet inexplicably drawn to our exemplars, maybe those in our line of work or celebrities or athletes. We just want to get close to them. We want to maybe get a few words in. Maybe something will rub off on us or we'll pick up a tidbit of wisdom. Maybe, just maybe, they'll notice us. Little old me. If only we knew someone who belonged in the clubhouse, so to speak, someone who could usher us into their presence. Maybe you're like me and the Ascension wasn't really ever talked about other than a necessary speed bump to on the way to Pentecost. But um, <laughs> before we get into that, I think it's important to take a look just a few lines earlier. Paul precedes this section of text in Ephesus by encouraging his readers that he's praying for them. In fact, he's not just praying. He says, I do not cease to remember you in my prayers. That's intense. That's a lot of praying. Well, how does he pray? He asks God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay, well, that sounds really nice, but why do they need that? Why do they need the eyes of their hearts enlightened in order to find hope? We're inferring a bit here, but I don't think it's much of a stretch. They need spiritual eyes. They need spiritual wisdom. They need divine revelation because things don't look so good with their regular eyes. I don't know about you if it's like this for you, but to me, it's not always obvious that Jesus is sitting on the throne. Anyone else? Paul's just got done in the passage preceding our reading today telling them that they've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, that they've been adopted as sons of Jesus Christ, that they have redemption through his blood, and that God's forgiveness and grace have been lavished upon them, and they have an inheritance in Christ. And it's almost as if he can hear their rebuttal if not in that very moment, at least at some point in their lives, where they say, if that's so true, Paul, then why don't I feel it? Why do I struggle to believe it? Help me out here, Paul. If he's working all things according to the counsel of his will, like you say he is, if that's really the case, then why are things so messed up out there? Forget about out there. Why are things so messed up in here? I've talked with some of you and you're struggling to hold on to faith. You're holding on for dear life and you're not even sure that it's worth it. You know all the right answers, you've read all the right verses, and you're trying so hard to hang on, but Jesus seems so far away. If that's you this morning, and if keeping right now keeping your faith in Christ is a daily battle, you're not crazy. Paul wants you to know it's not just you. We need the Spirit of God, his Spirit of wisdom and revelation to show us what he's up to, both in the world and especially in our hearts, because it's not always so obvious that he is up to something. Remember Pilate, when Jesus is brought before him, he asked Jesus if he's the king of the Jews, and Jesus' response is that his kingdom is not of this world. It's a little obtuse, Jesus. (laughs) I think the reason Jesus doesn't give Pilate a straight answer is because the king of the Jews doesn't even begin to describe the extent to which he rules. It's here in these moments Jesus is in the process of subverting death itself. Forget about the Roman Empire. That is nothing for him. But although it will not always be, Often his work is obscured to our natural eyes. In fact, the very template that he's given us to pray is that his kingdom in the heavenly realms would bleed over to the earthly domain. We may not like to hear it. I may not like to hear it. But the work of truly knowing what God is up to, indeed the work of establishing his way in our lives and in the world is a work of prayer. Our efforts and our studies and the books we read, they're all fine. But God must open the eyes of our hearts to see the hope of the inheritance that God has in store for us, the down payment of which is the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was after Christ's ascension, as the disciples waited in that upper room, that the scriptures tell us they spent that time devoted to prayer. Every Sunday, During communion, we have prayer ministers available in the back, and you don't need to be in a crisis of faith in order to avail yourself to prayer. Maybe you've just run out of words. Maybe you're like Moses, and you need an Aaron and a Hur to hold up your arms for a while in the battle. Maybe you just like the eyes of your hearts enlightened to see the work of Jesus in your family and in your workplace and in your very heart. Myself and others on the prayer team would be delighted to join you in prayer. Okay, so moving on. What is the basis? What is the basis for this asking of the spirit of wisdom and revelation? What hope do we have for our eyes actually to be enlightened? I would argue that it's both the basis for and the object of the spiritual seeing. He's basing it on the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us. The very power, the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he not only raised him from the dead, but he seated him at his right hand. He's basing it and aiming it at the ascension. It's a gorgeous bit of prose that God the Father, the Father of glory, with the working of the strength of his might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, gave Christ to be the head over all things to the church, and the church to be his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. I love how John Chrysostom, a 4th century archbishop in Constantinople, puts it. He says, Oh, how high has he raised the church! For as if he were lifting it by some stage machine, he has led it up to a great height and installed it on that throne. For where the head is, there is the body also. The very throne room of God. Can you imagine a place where we might be less worthy to enter? But we desperately want to be there, don't we, in that great cosmic clubhouse. It's such a deep impulse of ours to want to be on the inside. It's in our vernacular, FOMO, fear of missing out. We want to be on the in. Ever since we were expelled from the garden, all we've ever really wanted is to get back to the garden, back where we could walk and talk with God, where we could see him and know him and be known by him where work was rewarding and meaningful, a place of pristine beauty, fertile and fruitful, a place completely absent of suffering and pain and confusion, but going back is not an option. That garden is heavily guarded. I recently introduced my kids to one of Steven Spielberg's and George Lucas's classic animated allegories. The Land Before Time. <laughs> Everything was perfect. Except I knocked these tissues over. Everything was perfect before an ancient enemy brought death into Littlefoot's world. Men with the addition of Sarah, Ducky, Petrie, and Spike, the multi-ethnic family, at the urging of a prophetic voice, make their way through a broken and fallen world. Harassed by the one who would steal, kill, and destroy, to a place where death and tears will be no more. And at long last, they reach the Great Valley, a place of untold abundance and safety, and most importantly, reunion with the ones they love the most. Isn't that the story of the church? A reunion with the one who knows us best and loves us most. This morning, be comforted, church, You were not only intended to be close to him, you you will not only one day be reunited with him, that right now, even now, in the ascended Christ, you are seated with him. He has brought us in and given us his very self. In the ascended Christ, you belong there in the throne room. You don't have to sneak in. You couldn't if you tried. I think of Tim Keller In light of his passing, the remark that he made that the only person who dares wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access to the Father through Christ. Your Father's good pleasure is yours, and he loves you. In the ascended Christ, your suffering is vindicated. In the ascended Christ, there is rest for you. His righteousness is yours. He sees you this morning. He is yours and you are his. So know that when we move to this table in a few moments, when you eat his body and drink his blood, you are not only bringing Christ into your body, that you are being brought to him, to the presence of the Father. That's what the liturgy of the table is all about, to receive from him life and life to the full. Only then, as Shmimon writes, after having been immersed in this new life of the kingdom, after this liturgy of ascension, can we then return to the world, faces reflecting the light of joy and peace of that kingdom, and truly be its witnesses. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened to this great spiritual reality this morning, even as we await and hope for the day when we will see our Lord face to face and dwell with him forevermore.